again, one more caveat. This story, especially this chapter, does deal with themes of suicide. So please keep that in mind. Anna Schutz, chapter 14. The light from the beams of a few streetlights near the airstrip glinted off the snow, and I thought about how I'd always loved it so much. God's little icebox he shared with us. I wanted to care enough about stuff like the snow or the changing leaves, care enough to stop myself from what I was about to do, but I couldn't. If I didn't do something, the cycle of ups and downs, the crushing defeats that followed glimmers of hope, would never stop. Ahead, a patrolling MP car approached. As the glare of the headlights passed by, I could see the same PFC at the wheel who had caught me in the basement. I bore him no ill will for detaining me. He was just doing his job, and every time he saw me on the tiny post, he waved at me. He seemed to like me. After all, I had given him a chance to finally almost arrest someone and dragged that 9mm pistol on his hip out and pointed at somebody. I had probably made his career, or at least until he was finally sent to Afghanistan or some horrible place where he would point a lot of guns at a lot of people and maybe do worse. I turned off the road and headed up the little trail into the woods to my tree. The branches were denuded of leaves, and the full moon was bouncing its glow off the fresh snow, lighting up the woods like it was noon. I stopped in the silvery darkness and smiled. It was so beautiful to see it like midday in the middle of the night. I found the ugly cross-hatching I had scratched into the tree base and crouched to dig in the snowy ground. Thankful it wasn't frozen yet. Eventually, the bullet appeared in the earth, and I pulled it from the dirt. Prying the cap off the cigar case, I slid the mean little device into my palm and held up to the glow of the moon. The brass was still bright, and the projectile still gleamed down to its sharpened tip. There was no rust or discoloration around the primer on the base. By all indications, it was still a live round. I wasn't sure how I felt about it, now that I was having to put my fantasies into practice, so I chose not to think about it, and got moving. Just like jumping out of a plane, or climbing a high tower without a net, or any of the other stupid things we did, you just did it. Not looking forward or back. You'll feel better when it's over, is what we told ourselves if we even gave it that much thought. It felt like an eon ago that I had last rolled the chilly metallic little charm over my fingers with its familiar reassuring powers, but time wouldn't matter soon. I slid it into my sock where it rested next to Anna's ID tag, slash toe tag, and the original charcoal drawing of her. I had an empty M16 magazine we'd used in training in my waistband. I would use it to seat the bullet correctly in the chamber when I got my rifle. I jogged back to the arms room in the same building where the barred windows of my lair had called to me. Pulling open the door, I slowly walked down the hall, hearing my damp shoes squeak on the tiles, and stared at the arms room door. I knew that if I was going to do it, there would be no going back, no stops or starts. I would have to jam the keycard into the slot in the wall, open the big metal portal, and then quickly load one of the rifles with my stolen bullet, and point it under my skull, and then pull the trigger, before I chickened out, or was discovered by one of the guys on charge of quarters making his rounds. My palms were slimy with sweat, and my heart beat against my temples. I held the card out, hovering in the chilly air. I closed my eyes and made a slow, long thrust into the slot. Some big old lock inside of the old vault made a clicking, and then a clacking sound. I had heard it before when Jenkins had opened up the old space. I opened the heavy old door and stared in. There were metal gun racks along the walls, now emptied, as most of the weapons were in Iraq with the rest of the company. However, in the corner was the meager collection of rifles kept behind for Rear D. I stared at them a second longer, like a kid, waiting to make a big purchase he was unsure of. I pulled the empty magazine from under my waistband, then produced the round and slid it into the top of the mag. It was shaking in my wet hand. 
I felt a nervous excitement, almost like I was about to lose my virginity or get in a fight. I moved towards the line of weapons, smelling the clinging stink of gun oil. I pulled my assigned rifle from the rack, buttstock number 024, and slid my palm over the pistol grip. The thing about an M16 is that it just feels so good, so ergonomic, like it just wants to vacuum seal to all the sweet spots of your body. Burrowing into the web of skin between thumb and fingers, that nice little groove under your cheekbone resting on top of the stock as you lay in the dirt waiting for an ambush, the butt resting in the crook of your shoulder like a coiled snake. I felt it make contact with all those familiar parts, and just as I was about to enjoy it, I felt it make contact with all those old familiar spots. Just as I was about to enjoy it, though, I wondered if this would be in fact one of the last things I'd ever feel. I slid the mag into the magazine well and slapped up on the base of it to make sure it was seated. Slowly I pulled the charging handle back and watched through the ejection port as the bolt slid rearward. I rode the charging handle forward, letting it cruise under my hooked finger. The steel bolt caught the brass at the back of the projectile at the top of the mag and was driven into the chamber, nose first. It slid home, and I sort of hoped that a malfunction or a catastrophic error might occur, as if a failure might be a sign or omen that I shouldn't do it. I stopped to listen to the silence of the room and felt the cold. My stomach was reeling, and my heart thumped in spite of my growing numbness. My trembling hands caused the rifle to jiggle slightly. I cursed under my breath and squatted on the old concrete floor of the arms room. I had never pointed a gun at myself before, especially not one with a live round in it waiting to go off. I took a breath and slowly raised the muzzle up towards my soft palate, then held it. Come on, just like Kurt Cobain or all those pictures you look at. Like all the other things you've done, just hurry up and it'll all be over. I closed my eyes and tried to think about Anna. One, two, three, pull, and you'll be with her. Anna, I said under my breath as I felt the cold, oily muzzle slide smoothly along my razor stubble. The safety was off. There would be no false fires, no practices, just a few pounds of pressure. And then, Anna, please be there, I thought, as a quivering trigger finger slowly began to bend into the trigger well. It was a shaking little worm on a hook as it began to slowly sink lower. I grimaced in the chilly room, staring at the far wall of weapons lined up, dress right dress, like the soldiers who used them. The tension on my pointer finger was growing, slowly being pulled down by its own weight, slowly and painfully like the movement of a glacier, and my heart slammed against my chest as I felt the last bit of slack on the trigger go taut. Anna, I pleaded under my breath. A hand as cold as an ice block wrapped around my shoulder and froze my breath. I spun around, the same sad eyes the same pretty face. Anna! I leaned in and wrapped my arms around her icy frame. I felt like a desperate kid who finally finds his parents after being lost in the store. Her icy hands rubbed my back soothingly. The rifle still dangled from my right hand as I embraced her, and I clicked the safety on before dropping it to the ground with a clatter, half wondering if maybe I had in fact shot myself. I leaned back and stared into those sad brown eyes, and then kissed her. It was incredibly cold, but I didn't let it stop me. Where were you? I heard the hurt in my own voice. She looked down for a moment, then leaned in and whispered, You cannot do this. Her voice sounded slow, like it was coming through a haze of water, but even then I could hear the urgency. I can't keep going. Something hot and wet pulled in my eyes. She shook her head. You can't do this. I pulled back from her and looked into her eyes. Why didn't you tell me you were going to leave me? I could feel tears coming over the edges of my eyelids, and I wiped them away with the back of my hand. She studied me for a moment, almost with a maternal expression, and then said, 
You would have been here even sooner if I had told you. She pointed at the arms room. She was right. The only thing that had kept me going this long, aside from my vacations with the Nazis, was hoping to see her again. You don't know what it is like, Ollie, to be trapped forever, to live your own death over and over every time the leaves change. She smiled sadly and ran a frozen hand over my cheek, then leaned in and held me. You need to keep trying, she said very softly. I don't want this to be what you see forever. Anna, I began. I wanted to tell her I was sorry about what had happened in the clinic. I even wanted to ask about whose baby it was. A thousand things went through my mind, but then dissolved when her body went stiff in my arms, her own arms locking at her sides, and her back going ramrod straight. I jerked back and looked into her eyes. Her jaw dropped, eyes wide with terror. Father, she said in a breaking voice. I shot a glance behind me. There he was. Mr. Schutz, the old death's head harbinger of abortions glaring at us from the doorway. Do so! He shrieked in an electric tortured growl as he lunged forward. Anna shrieked and ran through my body in a blast of cold air. Her father lunged at her in the doorway, but she twisted in a near pirouette, and he missed her as she shot by. The gray harbinger pivoted around and took off after her as I followed, not feeling anything but a need to touch her again and destroy that old man. She ran down the hall as he chased after her, her tweed coat and skirt sloughed off onto the floor, and now as she neared the exit, a familiar gown from the clinic was all she wore. Her feet suddenly became bare as they scurried silently over the old tiles. Anna! I called, sprinting with all my power down the old heavy tiles. She paid me no mind, and I realized that right now she wasn't Anna, no longer the sage 19-year-old of 70 years who held my hand and comforted me. She was the teenage girl I'd seen in the clinic, scared and abused, Reliving something awful from her past, she couldn't stop or change. She shot out of the building. The ugly wool-clad shoulders of her father lunged and pounded as he followed through the exit. I burst out of the barracks door and down a tiny avenue between some storage sheds. The cold air ripped at my lungs as I ran past the convenience store. I had lost sight of Anna and her father, but seeing Anna in her clinic-issued gown made it clear where they might reappear reliving the same horrible scene all over again. I ran past the airstrip and jetted again for the second time that night into the maze of clawing, leafless branches. I ducked under the sharpened tree limbs and curved around the bends in the path. As I ran, something blew past me like a freight train, a blistering, quick, forceful rush of frozen air that shot icy little bits of snow into the webbing of my running shoes and stole my breath from my throat. I saw the familiar jack-booted monster appear just ahead of me, hobbling and bounding like a grizzly through the trees and brush. My heart sank when she materialized ahead of him. Anna! I yelled as I surged down the path to our clearing. I ran hotter than ever, ducking under the branches and shifting my weight with every little twist and turn of the tiny trail. Breaking into the clearing where our overhang was, I saw him charging towards the refuge of rock and moss where I first saw her hiding. She's not there. You can't see her. My mind screamed. She's hiding and you won't find her. This time, though, I wasn't there to stop it as I had been weeks ago. To snap Anna out of the memory, she was compelled to relive and replay of what her father did all those years ago. I sprinted down the little embankment to the overhang, but he had already dragged her out from the ledge. I closed in as he choked her, pinning her to the ground, spreading his knees over her chest. I yelled Anna's name, feeling my lungs in flame as I closed in on that hateful man. I was going to knock him on his back, then squeeze and crush and tear until his windpipe was gone, until he was no more, until this awful walking mountain of hate and sadism was done forever. Then I turned to her to see if there was a speck of life in her to be revived. One last little bit of tangible evidence of the tentative link between us to call her back to me. I leapt at him, hands out, fingers curled, ready to grip and rip. 
I slid right through him and landed awkwardly under the ledge where Anna had hidden. I rolled onto my hip to face Mr. Schutz, but he was gone. And Anna was, too. The snow was pure and clean except for the space-age treads where my running shoes had cut through the snow before my flying leap. I rolled onto my back and stared up at the stars that burned through the trees. I wanted to sob, but I couldn't. I crawled underneath the overhang as I tried to catch my breath and be in the last place Anna had known life. I would do it now, sprint to the arms room and hope that my failure to act sooner didn't mean that my breach of the arms room had been discovered. If I was dead, maybe then I could stop them on the other side, or at least not have to deal with this anymore. I curled into the fetal position under the rock and imagined lying there with Anna, protecting her, keeping her safe, being with her forever. Something barely surfacing from the soil was grinding against my cheek. I scraped at it with my index finger and then peevishly rose up on an elbow to dig it out of my way. I dug for an outline around the jagged protrusion and whatever it was was down deep. I imagined Anna having that thing poking her while she hid in terror. My fingers began to uncover the contours of a big whitish mass that was gleaming in the moonlight. Finally, I hooked a finger into the lump and flung it out of the hiding spot. I scraped the dirt back to refill the void it left, then lay back down on my side and stared out into the white moonlight of the clearing. That was when I saw the familiar black orb of an eye socket staring at me from the ground. It looked so familiar. It bounced with images from textbooks I couldn't place and DVD cases with dark titles. Something about cartoon bottles of poison and secret fraternities. It was a skull. One side was covered with mud, but the other was bleached white against the snow. The old eye socket was filled with black earth, unable to do anything ever again but stare straight ahead. The triangle-shaped void where the nose had been was what had poked through the soil and ground at my cheek. It was over. All my dreams of that long-fingered, soft-footed girl who I had wanted to hold at night, the one that walked without making noise over the dead leaves, the woman that smiled at me with those beautiful eyes. This was her. The end. No more. Just an organic pile of bones and rags that would disappear soon, too. I rose up, staring at the lump of bone as it stared back at me. My back slid along the ledge as I inched away from it. I looked down at the void beneath the rock where Anna's other remains probably had been buried under the convenient ledge after her murder. I could hear a dog in the distance and see what looked like flashlights bouncing along the trail in the distance. I heard radio chatter and knew it was the MPs. I rolled backward over the overhang behind me and took off into the dark. I just wanted to thank you for listening. I hope that you like the story. Right now, this podcast is available on YouTube. It's available on Podbean, Stitcher, and iTunes. So if you're not already listening to the story in your preferred format, please look at the links below and find what you need. If you go onto Facebook and do a search for Keystrokes Amid Cobwebs, you can find our Facebook page and learn more about the show and also potential future shows. So please get on there so we can become friends. And finally, I'm really looking for feedback. Do you like the story? Do you hate it? What are some things you enjoyed or things you would change? Um, if you can, please give me an email at keystrokesamidthecobwebs at gmail.com. I'd love to hear what you have to say. Thank you.